0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope
1: that you visit Who Makes Sense. Today, in the wake of the Citizens United decision... We often hear about the outsized role that right-wing elites like the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson play in the political process as a result of their campaign donations and lobbying activities. But these efforts have longer histories. In fact,
0: many of the most prominent elites had their ideas and practices shaped by organizations like the John Birch Society and the Mount Pelerin Society and other groups that were part of the organized resistance to the New Deal.
1: Today, we talk with Kim Phillips Fine about this history and how it revises our understanding of the rise of conservatism in the 1970s and after.
0: You are listening to Who Makes Sense, a History of Capitalism podcast.
1: I'm Betsy Beasley. And I'm David Scott. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time.
0: We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present.
1: Today, we speak with Kim phillips Fine.
2: I'm Kim Phillips-Fine, and I teach American history at the Gallatin School for Individualized Study at New York University, and I'm also associated faculty with the history department here.
1: Thank you for joining us, Kim. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what your book is about?
2: The book is Invisible Hands, The Businessman's Crusade Against the New Deal, and it is a narrative history of the role of business people in building the conservative movement over the post-war years. And more broadly, it's a story of the kind of opposition and resistance to what historians sometimes call the New Deal order in part of the business community over that time. Can you tell us how the book developed?
1: Was there a particular piece of evidence that presented particular questions that you wanted to explore in greater detail?
2: Well, the, the book actually grew out of, this is always a little embarrassing, but the work that I did as a senior in college and my senior thesis, which had to do with labor relations in the meatpacking industry, And I went to the University of Chicago and I did a lot of, I wrote this thesis about the unionization of meatpacking, which meatpacking, people in meatpacking, meatpackers were very hostile to labor unions and really many of the major companies recognized them only under federal order essentially to do so during World War II. So I was very interested in the kind of government regulation in the meatpacking industry and the Hostility, the continued hostility, because I think I would had been imagining that you would find more acquiescence or more acceptance or just an easier route to unionization in these companies than was actually the case, so I think that and I should also say that I was always very interested in um, in kind of the role of business and of economic elites in kind of determining the terrain for labor history. I would say I kind of came at this whole subject out of an interest in in labor history and in labor unions, And but I, I, I felt that it was hard to study them in isolation from thinking about business. So I would say that, that was sort of the first... Um, and I think also this is like kind of in the late 1990s. There was a very strong sense of the just the ubiquitousness of capitalism and a kind of celebration of markets and of the stock market. And I always felt rather skeptical about that and also curious about where it had come from and how this had come to be so Dominant as a framework. So, those two kind of general interests, which I took into graduate school, I think then led to a larger set of questions about the conservative movement. And this was also, it was kind of right around 2000, 2001, when I thought of the project that would become my dissertation, which then became in a very much changed form Invisible Hands. I was interested in. Uh, You know, many of the presentations of the conservative movement really focused on it as this kind of grassroots populist campaign. And I just felt that that seemed to miss some important parts of the story. And I was interested in what role more elite figures played in the, the movement. So I think those questions were kind of what led me to the topic in a way more than finding a single source that then, uh, that then kind of opened things up for me.
0: One person who is particularly interesting in this story and who is not widely known about is Lemuel Bulware. Who was he, and what role did he play in your research?
2: When I started doing research on, on the subject, I think I do think, and you mentioned the kind of Lemuel Boulware stuff, I do think kind of finding the Boulware materials was also a key moment. So Lemuel Bulware was, he was a vice president at General Electric, and he was a ex- extremely... Uh, committed to finding ways to rein in the power of unions at GE. And I guess what was so remarkable to to me about his papers were the level of political sophistication and the kind of analysis and his use of different economic thinkers. And he was clearly not somebody who was just thinking in a short term way about any particular contract. He was not somebody who was just motivated by a kind of narrow understanding of the bottom line. He really saw himself as kind of engaged in a long-term political struggle against unions. And I think his letters and correspondence were really key for me in conceptualizing the project.
0: And Bulware was important to Ronald Reagan's formation, Right. Can you tell us a little bit about Ronald Reagan's connection to General Electric?
2: Well, another interesting thing about Boulware, um Lemuel ricketts Bulwar, was that, and this was one of the interesting things about GE as well. I mean, GE has a kind of special role for people who write about the conservative movement because Ray, Ronald Reagan was famously a spokesman for the company. He hosted its weekly television show during the 1950s. This was kind of after his Hollywood career and his time as a union president had gone south. And he—so he hosted the weekly drama, the—the this kind of you know, it was a different kind of little movie every week. And he also went around the country speaking to audiences of um GE employees in a kind of unusual I mean this is he, he, he was a you know a traveling celebrity basically. He would show up in town, he would speak to the Chamber of Commerce, maybe the local Rotary Club, and then he would go to the factory and give these kind of speeches about um about the company and about capitalism and anti-communist speeches to groups of workers gathered there. And biographers of Reagan or people who have written about Reagan have picked up on this and written about it. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of an important part of the Reagan story, that this is one of the places Reagan learned how to be a populist speaker, how he kind of took his politics out of Hollywood and into the sort of common—he brought it to the common man— And so I was very interested to find just how deeply committed all of General Electric's top leadership was to a— set of anti-union policies within the corporation and also to this very intense project of political education that that not just—so Reagan didn't come out of nowhere, I guess, that Reagan was part of this milieu at the company that was very actively engaged in, for example, setting up these classes that workers would have to take on company time about the free market. Or setting up these kind of study groups for supervisors and managers, where they would read books like um, Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom, or um, kind of odd little anti-New Deal tracts like John Flynn's The Road Ahead, or you know, so they and or you know, kind of looking at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, you know, so they they kind of had. And and then Boulware himself would kind of go around and try to persuade other business people to become part of this long-term political campaign as he saw it. And so it was really – that was part of what was so interesting for me, though, about GE. I mean, it was partly that GE, you know, was a major corporation. This is not kind of a small family-owned manufacturer. It's not some kind of fringe Company. This is a, one of the major technological and economic innovators for the United States during this time. But just seeing that Reagan was really coming out of this whole world, and in that, that's you know to understand his development, you need to understand the development of that community and of that mobilization.
1: So, for a lot of listeners, anti-union employers are the norm. It's what we expect. But this wasn't necessarily the case in the period that you're looking at. Can you tell us about what your story can explain about this period from the 1940s into the 1970s and how that period was different from you know, what we think of as normal today?
2: Yeah, well, I think it's—so at the end of World War II and in the early 1950s, this is sort of the high point of the power—for for the power of labor unions in the American economy. Um, slightly more than a third of the American workforce is is in unions at this moment, and in and, and many— core manufacturing, core industries that's much higher. Um, And unions, even if you're not in a union, your job is likely to be affected by the contracts that unions are winning. So it is at this kind of high point of labor power. It's also a moment when many corporations appeared to have entered into a much more amicable relationship with their unions. So companies like Ford or General Motors or US Steel, which had intensely resisted the organization of their workforce of their workers early part of the century, finally finally have accepted the new legal and institutional regime that emerges out of the New Deal in World War Two. They are now, you know, negotiating contracts with with unions, they accept the whole Kind of mechanism of the contract and of the grievance procedures and of ways to appeal to make sure the contract's being enforced. People sometimes talk about this as the Treaty of Detroit moment, referring to the uh, contract established between the United Auto Workers and General Motors in 1950. This this sense that after years and years of labor war, finally there is a treaty and a settlement, and both sides kind of recognize each other's essential legitimacy. So this plays into how we think of the whole post-war years more generally as a time of kind of social peace, social stability, rising prosperity across the board, and a, a moment when taken to its furthest extreme when corporations are sort of looking out for the interests of their workers and where you don't see the same kinds of, you know, kind of downsizing and outsourcing of labor that we think of as Kind of the contemporary moment. People sometimes talk about this as the labor-capital accord. Or I do think this does actually characterize something important about the mid-twentieth-century economy. And there are sort of real important institutional and political differences between that moment and our own. Nonetheless, it was very interesting to me to just to find pockets of real resistance and antagonism to that social order at this moment when we generally think of it being widely accepted and dominant and hegemonic.
0: So these pockets of New Deal resistance, how do they develop institutions and things of that nature?
2: Right. Well, this is in some ways, I think, one of the complicated things about the book and maybe any project that charts the development of a set of ideas from a, a, a less accepted position to being at the center is how, how does that happen? And, and thinking about how to evaluate the popularity of these ideas at any given moment. So in the book, I talk about a range of different people and their effort—I guess—people and their efforts to build either institutions or to organize other people to their point of view. And the—I I do this both by talking about some of the early institutions, the think tanks such as the American Enterprise Institute, which is alive and thriving today. I talk about the Mont Pelerin Society, which was sort of more of a group of economists and intellectuals, which had less, you know, they they didn't really try to comment on policy so much. I talk about General Electric and some of the other early anti-union companies that sought, again, not to just operate themselves, but to kind of reach out to other companies and to build more staying power around these. And and then I talk a bit about how by the late 1950s, there is a somewhat coherent group of people, institutions, magazines, radio stations, think tanks, who see themselves as allied in a common political project. And I think who, who, who then push Barry Goldwater, work with Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater to both encourage him to run for the presidency and to kind of to, to both to promote him as a political figure and a politician. And then he accepts their support and kind of runs with it to galvanize a larger group of people and a greater amount of attention. So that is, in some ways, the first story of the first half of the book, is the development of this community. On on the one hand, these are people who don't, as Goldwater himself doesn't, they don't occupy it. Their ideas aren't sort of the dominant ones in either political party. They aren't... Really, there's a kind of a strong liberal economic position in the media, in another kind of set of think tanks, and among among many business leaders. So they're not dominant. At the same time, they're not—people sometimes characterize the early conservative movement as voices in the wilderness or, you know— it comes out of the wilderness, and I think that 's also not accurate really that these are people who do have they occupy positions of social power they are not um, they' are a somewhat distinct group from from different factions on the far right they are people who you know they, they they actually have some kind of leverage and access to money, and that that makes a big difference in their ability to build these organizations. So for example, the American Enterprise Institute, you know, really recruited heavily donations from different businesses. And it did so by kind of trying to explain that it was building an alternative economic position that would be more sympathetic to the role of business in the American economy. And they're not really on the fringe, nor are they dominant. It's just a question of struggle and contest that runs throughout the entire period. That's kind of the first half of the book. And the second half talks more about the 1970s and what changes in the 1970s and really enables a lot of these ideas to both get more attention among other business people and then I think ultimately more broadly to the kind of the failures of the liberal political economy at that moment. Without that, they had difficulty gaining traction outside of this original small, this original community. At the same time, that community helped to incubate them and develop them and create institutions that then when the larger context changed, you know, they could use to, to really develop and take off.
1: What are some of the implications of your argument for the contemporary moment?
2: It's interesting. I have thought, you know, what? So this this book came out in two thousand and nine. It actually came out really right at the very moment, maybe like two weeks before Obama's inauguration. So Obama had President Brockman had just won the election, and there were both a lot of comparisons that people were making about the New Deal and the Great Depression, and obviously following the Panic and Crash of two thousand eight and also and i think also a sense of kind of the defeat of george w bush and that this meant that conservatism was on its way out and Uh, You know, since the book's publication, that obviously, both I think people's kind of hope and optimism about the Obama presidency has been tempered greatly. And the response to the recession of 2008 has definitely not been on the order of, it just isn't a new New Deal the way some people thought that it might have been at that very moment. And, um, And also, I think there's been an increased amount of attention to the role of, um, the role of very wealthy individuals in political life. And this comes partly out of the interest in the Koch brothers, for example, or the Citizens United decision and the entrance into politics of people who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on particular elections and just sort of single individuals. So I do think there's a lot of, and and, and I think those people in a way are, they are trying to do something which is very similar to what the people that I write about in Invisible Hands were trying to do. Very small numbers of people trying to leverage their money into a broader movement with mixed success at any given moment, but nonetheless, I think, even though they often have failed to to capture the particular election and to be successful in the particular contest, the very fact of this massive spending changes something about the political landscape more broadly. So I think that's one kind of piece of resonance. And I guess I would just mention another, though, which is a little different, which is, the period that the book discusses is a time when there were far fewer kind of institutionalized business lobbies than exist today. And so near the end of the book, I talk about the creation of the Business Roundtable, for example, which is an organization that represents uh, very large corporations, um, Fortune 500 corporations. I talk a bit about the revitalization of the Chamber of Commerce, which is a much broader, you know, much broader uh, based business group, it doesn't have the same kind of focus on very large companies. You know, the whole host of the ways of business being represented in Washington, and and not just in the kind of ideological conservatism that. Uh, is represented by the Koch brothers, but a much you know much broader, more pervasive, more everyday um, kind of linked not just to the Republican Party but to the Democrats as well. I mean, I think that is another really important shift, and the people that I, I Invisible Hands kind of. Straddles both of those communities, both the kind of the, the very ideological conservatives, but also the attempt to build a broader uh, voice for business in politics, as they would say. And I think that is another, um, you know, another way that the book resonates with people today is that it's kind of talking about the creation of this infrastructure, which isn't just linked to the conservative movement, but you know has a you know it just has a much deeper set of uh, deeper impact,
0: so how does your argument here revise the notion that is more familiar to most people that conservatism ascended in the 1970s as a response to the social movements of the 1960s
2: yeah, well, I think this is one of the, one, one of the big uh, ideas both both among historians and also In the kind of unpopular writing about politics, this sense that the real origin point for conservatism and for the rise of conservatism is a backlash against the social movements of the 60s against the civil rights movement, against the anti-war movement, against feminism and gay rights, and that this is kind of what galvanized voters and brought them to the right. I mean, kind of people, the, the whole phenomenon of the Reagan Democrat, the idea of the white working class voter who becomes kind of disaffected from the Democratic Party at a cultural level and instead starts voting Republican. And, you know, you see this idea you know, I think I think all over and captures something. Um, one of the corollaries of that idea is often that the new left and the social movements were were too radical, that they were too too antagonistic, they should have worked harder to find ways to reach out to the white working class voters that would become disaffected. And I think that I think that the thrust of Invisible Hands is to try to explain the conservative mobilization in a different way and I think one of the you know one of the observations in the book is that the cultural politics has actually been a much less uh, successful and in some ways less central part of the conservative movement in power or the Republican party in power, it, much of what has actually changed is not really the cultural politics of the country but a set of economic policies, and that you can't really understand where those come from by looking at these—either at voting patterns on some level or, or at the culture wars that come out of the 60s. You have to know where they come from. You have to look somewhere else. And so the book, to some extent, locates that among— in this business community and also in the kind of work of economists and policy intellectuals who are critical of the liberal economics coming out of the 30s and 40s. So— the book also has this thrust of wanting to look for how, where you locate historical change and that it's important to understand the role of people who actually, that there are people who actually have power and have more power than other people do. And they have it because of their social position. They have it because of their access to money. They have it because of their relationship to property and that that actually matters. And you can't, you know, you, you, in, your, in thinking about social movements and electoral politics, you should not accept a kind of populist view of the world entirely because it's important to look at how, um, yeah, that some some people do have more power than others and how do they use it.
1: So, Kim, the book that you're currently working on will also be of interest to our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about that project?
2: Yeah, so the new project that I'm working on is a book uh, tentatively titled Fear City, which is about New York City during the 1970s and the fiscal crisis and near bankruptcy of the city during these years. So it's a very different book than Invisible Hands because it's focused on one place and on a very short time period, um, really in the mid to late 1970s. But I do think the book is trying to explain some of this, to get at some of the same large questions. So what happened in New York in the 1970s is there had been a very expansive local welfare state in the city. The city got into uh, terrible fiscal problems in the mid-70s where it ceased to really be able to finance the social programs that it was running. It Then it, it Tried to evade this or get around this by borrowing more and more intensely. Eventually, the banks refuse to lend to the city any longer. This sets off a period where it appears that the city may have to declare bankruptcy. And eventually, the city doesn't do that but it's it's under a great deal of pressure to cut many of its social programs to close hospitals to close daycare centers to start charging tuition at the city university, which had previously been free and it does these things and it kind of changes the the uh, dynamics in the city so the book you know I, I think it you know it's, it's, it's dealing with some of the same large questions about what happened to the welfare state at its broadest level, kind of what happened to a spirit of social democratic politics in the United States, to the degree that that existed, what happened to that mode of thinking, and why did it it go into decline around the 1970s? I think it's, and it also is very interested in the, the role of the financial community and of business people in the city and in kind of trying to transform the city. At the same time, I think the project was motivated maybe by questions that I had coming out of Invisible Hands. One was the desire to grapple much more deeply with the impact of the economic downturn of the 1970s and to think more about what that meant and to see it as a moment of of real crisis and change and to understand how the kind of politics of austerity and the sense of limits that come out of the recession of the 1970s affect thinking about political and social capacity more broadly. So I think there was a part of me that felt like the story in Invisible Hands was perhaps too linear, that it's kind of tracing the development and successive growth of a set of institutions and of an ideology, but that it it didn't do enough. I, I I wanted to know more about how the context of the 70s really changes things. The second difference is that the book, you know, in, in New York City, many of the people who were most active in transforming the city were Democrats and were liberals who continued to understand themselves as liberals. They were not hardline conservatives. They were not kind of pure you know, free market ideologues. And I wanted, and I, I think this is another question that I had coming out of Invisible Hands, is wanting to know more about how the Democratic Party changed, how did liberal thinking and Um, liberal understandings of the economy change in the 70s and afterwards. So it's not just a sense of kind of a partisan struggle in which the Republicans or the right win, but there's a way in which the broader framework for thinking about political and economic life changes. And that was what I, I think that the, you know, there are a lot of other things that brought me to this story. And I think. I was very interested. There's a lot of material in the conservative press about New York uh, and kind of hostility to New York, and I was, I I, which I kind of came across in working on Invisible Hands, and partly brought me to the topic. But I, I think there were also these larger questions. You know, it deals with a lot of the same broad themes, but comes at them from a very different direction.
1: If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at WhomakesSensePodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash WhomakesSense. And follow us on Twitter at WhomakesSense. And let us know if there are topics that you want to know more about.
0: You can learn more about Kim's work, including her recent story in the Atlantic Monthly at our website, WhomakesSensePodcast.com.
1: Who Makes Sense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies and Ethnicity.
0: Join us next month for more histories of capitalism.